Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our 11th episode, Bureau Chief Carl Cannon speaks with former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle about the role of the filibuster in the Senate. And Real Clear Policy Editor Tony Mills talks with the Hoover Institute's Adam White about the legal impact Neil Gorsuch will have on the Supreme Court. First up, Carl speaks with Senator Daschle about Senate procedure and tradition. I want to ask you about the Senate and what's going on there in the filibuster. But before I do that, um, you mentioned the bipartisan center. Uh, er, this week, the um, Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress gave an award to Steny Hoyer and Roy Blunt and cited them for their, you know, these are two pretty partisan guys, but they work together, they compromise, they show grace while doing so, civility when talking about the other side. And I, as I, I went to the dinner and I was there, I, I was trying to think of the senators I know, like you, who, you know, who have those qualities, but I thought, are they going to be able to give this award next year, or are these the last two guys on Capitol Hill who you can say that about? Well, I'm a big, big admirer of both of them, and I know them well, and I, I think those, uh, the recognition of those two leaders is well-deserved. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, comes to my, Bob Corker comes to mind, uh, a very thoughtful person, Lamar Alexander, um, Chris Coons, um, you know, there are, there are people that are very, very thoughtful. Patty Murray is uh, oftentimes uh, cited as one who really has reached out. She's worked closely with Speaker Ryan on things. So uh, there are people. I just I only wish that you wouldn't even have to ask that question, that it would just be a given. But uh, it's a good question. I think there is a, an affirmative answer. You know, well, I hope you're right, although a couple of those people you named have won it in the past. But, I, you know, I remember when I got to Washington, it was a long time ago, I was from California, a young regional reporter, and I was interviewing Leon Panetta, who I'm sure you remember well. Oh. And I said, you know, is this thing going to pass, whatever it was, something that, you know, mattered to, to me as a California reporter. And Leon said, Carl, I'm not sure that the center will, can hold anymore. This is, in, this is in the 80s, right? And I said, well... I said, Leon, just for sake of argument, how many centrists are there left in Congress? He said, you'd be shocked. It's it's not more than 150. <laughs> I thought <laughs> what we would give now for 150 people whose vote was really up for grabs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we've this has been coming over a long period of time for a lot of different reasons. And uh, we just uh, it's going to be hard to turn the ship around. But I I I I. I have to believe that at some point um, we're going to pay a high price if we don't start trying to turn the ship around. Um, so this week you've got this, well, this the filibuster, the, the you know, so-called nuclear option. I wish we'd have come up with a better expression than that. But uh, to basically end the filibuster for Supreme Court appointees and maybe damage the filibuster for all time for everything. You know, we don't know where this is going. But if you look, if you're just, if you're an ordinary American, not a Washington political correspondent or a former senator, and you're looking at, at what's going on and you think, you can't help but think, wait a minute, didn't, didn't Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders speak, you know, say that this was necessary to do when Harry Reid was this, the majority leader and the Democrats controlled? And when you say, and didn't Mitch McConnell warn that this would be terrible? And, you know, except for John McCain, it seems, who pointed this out in a floor speech, it seems like 
you could argue that it's all situational ethics with Democrats and Republicans, and that in the Senate, there are no guiding principles that these people believe in anymore. No, it is definitely situational ethics. It's uh, it's amazing. You could give the Republican speeches as Democrats uh, three years ago, and vice versa today. It's just amazing the the symmetry that exists uh, between those who believe that it's uh, that it's wrong today, but uh, believe in, in doing it uh, uh, before. It's uh, you know what I what I fear the most is a lack of respect and appreciation of the institution itself. And uh, unfortunately, Democrats have far dirtier hands when it comes to the erosion of the institutional pillars of the Senate than Republicans, going all the way back to, um, you know, they used to have filibusters in the House and in the Senate, and uh, the, Senate, the House took, uh, took them away in the 1830s, and the Senate began taking them away under Woodrow Wilson in 1917, and then getting rid of the talking filibuster in the 70s, and then the, the whole budget process was a Democratic uh, a, a product, and uh, that was, in my view, a procedural disaster. Then we lowered the threshold from 67 to 60. That was a Democratic effort. And then in 2013, we took it away completely uh, uh, for nominations, and that was Democratic. So Democrats who may lament this institutional deterioration, I think, have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, history here that uh, can't be explained away. Well, do you, do you think, when you, when you were the Senate Majority Leader, how much of the filibuster, how did you... How did you handle it? How did you explain to Democrats that they should have, they needed to take the long view when they wanted something, you know, they really thought something was so important they had to take these kinds of steps? Well, we, for some reason, we didn't have as many talking filibusters, uh, as many filibusters. There have been, I think in the last uh, 10 years, there have been something like 740 filibusters. Um, I always tell audiences that Lyndon Johnson, who served for six years, had exactly one filibuster, and uh, and that was the Civil Rights Act of 1957. In the last six years, there have been 422. So it's um, a clear deterioration. And I, I but I think it, there was a time when you didn't filibuster. We didn't filibuster uh, 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 Justice Thomas. We didn't filibuster Samuel Alito. We, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that that really didn't. Um, sufficiently uh, reached that what I would consider the sort of the moderate middle when it came to their philosophical approach that still were approved or were, were confirmed and that doesn't happen anymore well I but, get uh, go ahead I'm sorry no I was just gonna I was just gonna sum up and just say that 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 we're gonna see that whole notion exacerbated now dramatically with uh, uh, further erosion of this requirement to, to, to get a larger majorities well, I want to ask you two questions about this particular filibuster. And the first one is, um, if if both parties are essentially admitting, without using these words, that the Supreme Court is just one more political spoil, um, you know, and that that's and and that they can't they can't vote for a you know a perfectly qualified person like Neil Gorsuch because they don't agree with his views. And in some ways, that's a principled argument. In the other way, it makes. I wonder if, in the end, that just erodes faith in the court, that you'll, you'll have a Democratic or a Republican Supreme Court. Well, of course, they would do X or Y. And then you're asking people to, to Americans to follow the court and to consider it the highest law in the land and, the, and essentially the living embodiment of the Constitution. But, you know, they're just 
five partisan hacks and four on the other side. Carl, that's that's exactly my concern. More than anything else, I'm concerned. I am concerned a lot about the Senate, but I'm even more concerned about what this entails and implies for our judicial system going forward. I I think it's becoming increasingly politicized and naturally polarized, but I think this is a terrible, terrible trend that I'm, uh, you know, it used to be the Supreme Court was elevated above politics, and uh, they would come to, they still come, of course, to State of the Union messages and others, and they, they don't participate in the applause. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised one day if you start seeing judges applaud for <laughs> one or the other, just because this extension of the politicization of the court is now becoming so blatant. But I, I also worry about what this means for the ease with which even farther, uh, more extreme candidates will now be appointed. I mean, this if only 51 votes is now required, um, I could see radical, farly, far, much far more, more, more consequentially radical left and right candidates ultimately getting on the court and further polarizing and politicizing the process of judicial review going forward. And I think that would be just a disaster. Well, you take this this current case. So if the if the Democrats follow through on this thread, seems that it's going to happen. And Mitch McConnell does what he says he's going to do. You, you'll have Gorsuch confirmed. But that Donald President Trump may get another appointment or two. And you will have now. I wonder if the Democrats are going to rue in the short term what they've done here, because, I mean, Donald Trump, he could appoint Steve Bannon to the court. Or he doesn't even have to be a lawyer. There's nothing in the Constitution. He can appoint anybody he wants, and as long as he can get 51 or 50 Republicans to vote for it. Um, I wonder if the Democrats are making a tactical mistake as well as, as well as the kind we're talking about in terms of the long term. Well, sooner or later we're going to be facing that very question, and we'll know. Uh, there's no way of knowing now, but it, I think one could say confidently that this makes it easier to appoint even more extreme nominees as we look uh, to further vacancies. Uh, Senator, how much of this is, is Mitch McConnell's fault in, in this one regard? I don't, there's nothing in the Constitution that justifies what the Republicans did last year installing Merrick Garland. Um, Antonin Scalia died. That's not a Republican seat. That's a seat on the court. And to wait a year for his appointment, I don't. I certainly understand why the Democratic senators were incensed by that. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's unprecedented. It's just uh, makes a mockery of the process itself. It's so highly politicized. It. Uh, you know, it, uh, and I, I think it invites the payback mentality that uh, we see so much of now. So it's, it, it, you know, those kinds of decisions and actions uh, don't go uh, without some reaction. And uh, we're looking at that now. Uh, and I'm not sure it'll be over with for a long time to come. Do you, um, leaving the court aside, how does... How, does get, how would getting rid of the filibuster change the debate in the Senate? How will it change the Senate itself on other issues? Well, I've always feared majorityism, um, and I think majorityism is very evident in the House. I was just talking to a House member uh, yesterday, and uh, she was saying that the, the, you know, there is absolutely no inclusion of the minority in any decisions regarding schedule, uh, regarding the agenda, regarding... Uh, uh, just the process involved in legislating today. 
And I thought, I thought uh, Speaker Ryan's comment of a week or so ago when he he argued publicly that the reason they need to find some deal on on the health care plan was that if they didn't, Trump would start working with Democrats. Well, I, in a democracy and in a legislative body, it would seem to me that that would be a given that you would work with both sides. But but there seems to be such such a pressure now on the part of uh, the majority party not to include any assistance uh, on the part of the minority as they legislate is just apocryphal. It's just incredibly uh, uh, astounding to me that 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 we could have that mentality and and be so brazen about expressing it. Well, you know, Reagan worked with Democrats. Bush worked with George. Both Bushes worked with Democrats. Uh, Reagan worked with with Democrats. Uh, Bill Clinton worked with Republicans. So it, it you know it's been it's not we're not talking about eighteen ancient history here. It can be done, and this is in the you and I remember these cases. Absolutely, you were there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I was. You know, the, President Bush and I uh, used to joke. We gave each other a hug in front of TV uh, once uh, on the floor of the Senate, the House, and uh, joked about that many times. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I it, it isn't that all that that long ago when there was a, a lot more cooperation. But I, it's uh, the pressure is there now, and uh, and it's very hard. I've had actually had members say I'm. Happy to meet with uh, people on the other side, but just don't tell anybody I'm doing so. <laughs> well, listen, recently Chuck Schumer, the Democratic, the minority leader in the Senate, um, voted against the confirmation of Mer- of Mitch McConnell's wife, you know, one of the most over, probably the most overqualified transportation secretary we've ever had, possible exception of Norm Mineta. <laughs> so, what, I mean, how would you expect a guy to react to that? Well, there's, you know, the polarization now is just, uh, I thought one of the most vivid examples of how far we've come is that the bipartisan luncheon tables that used to exist, two tables, one Democratic, one Republican, but everybody sat everywhere and you sat next to each other and you really got to know your colleagues. Those tables were actually removed a while back. And for the life of me, I can't understand why. I mean, it just, they're, you know, just these little things, they constantly, uh, erode whatever opportunities there are for comity and cordiality and and uh, and therefore trust and and some level of communication that is required if you're going to compromise on legislative issues with the, the the complexity that we're looking at today whether it's health or tax or trade or infrastructure well, let me uh let me uh give you another example one just came to my mind it involved you in 2002, George W. Bush was campaigning. Um, it was against you, right? And he and remember this. And it was the fight was over the creation of the TSA, and the Democrats wanted. There were different versions of how the agency should be set up. And George W. Bush, President Bush, sort of said he'd said he'd carefully phrased it in all these times. But one time he slipped up and he said uh, that he implied that you had put party ahead of country. And we jumped on him, and he kind of have apologized, and it was a big deal. Remember that? I do. Well, yeah. um, President Obama used to routinely do that about say that about Republicans that they put party <laughs> in a country, and nobody even noticed anymore. It was like we had gotten used to that. You know, the, the bar had been lowered, um, and and I wonder how you can ever get that back. 
Well, it's going to take a concerted effort and some real leadership uh, you know, on both sides with, with that recognition of raising the bar and changing the norms back and doing things that show an appreciation for institutional respect and, and, uh, and protection of the institutions, something that just doesn't happen anymore. I don't, I can't, no one comes to the rescue of our institutions any longer, and that's, that's very, very troubling to me. Do you, um, if if the, your phone rang after we were done and and it was it was an c- unexpected conference call from uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, and they said, "Hey Tom, we're we're on a wrong track," but you 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 were able to be a majority leader who didn't have the problems we have. What what one thing could we do differently? How can we get? How can we restore this the institution to the place we want it to be, where it functions, where it where, where we can work together, what, what should we do? What would you tell them? Well, if I only had one thing, Carl, I think I would say, how about holding, instead of having separate caucuses three times a week, how about at least having one joint caucus once a week where you all get together and you two co-leaders run it and, 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 and really seek advice and, and counsel and Try to find ways with which to rebuild the level of, of communication and relationships that have been so deteriorated in the last several years. That, that's, there's no single panacea. If I, could, if I could then just add one more, it would, it would be try to keep your members here longer than a couple of days each week. I mean, having them on airplanes as early as Thursday afternoons and then coming back on Tuesday mornings, you can't run the country when you spend so little time here. Keep them here for three weeks at least um, and have those daily sessions where you, uh, those weekly sessions where you can join to have these joint caucuses. And oh, by the way, why don't you reinstall the phones that Trent and I had where we called each other, and they were a direct line to you and to me, and we talked about things as they came up without having to schedule or go through staff or anything. We just talked to each other. And start with those three things, and uh, let's see what happens. Well, that'd be, that would be – I'd love to know how they would react. Let me ask you one last question. I'll let you go. Um, it, what, would, what do you say to people, let's say progressives in the grassroots, who say, look, um, Tom, the filibuster – is, was fundamentally undemocratic. It, you know, it prevent it's it slowed the pace of civil rights. It was never it was never as the good old days weren't as good as you remember. And and getting rid of the filibuster is really, um, you know, it's more like like pure democracy. What would what's your answer to that to that assertion? Well, there's always a need to appreciate the minority, and the minority has different contexts and definitions. And I think the democratic process is not just 50 plus one or majority uh, as defined by, by n- numerical context alone. I think there's an appreciation of the importance of protecting the minority. And um, I, I'm not in favor of, 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 of filibusters. I think there are plenty of ways to bring better balance back to the filibuster. When we started dual tracking, we saw the demise of the process that was so incredibly uh, a part of the, the Senate for 150 years. And, you know, if we just restored the requirement that a filibuster be a talking filibuster, uh, I think you would see dramatic changes in the way the Senate operates. 
that's not going to happen. But uh, but I think protection of the minority is a democratic principle and norm and custom in this country worth protecting. Now, Tony talks with Adam about Gorsuch's role on the high court. Welcome to Real Clear Politics podcast series, The First 100 Days. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy, and with me today to discuss what Neil Gorsuch's confirmation might mean for the Supreme Court and American politics is Adam White, research fellow at the Hoover Institution. In addition to practicing and teaching law, Adam researches and writes about administrative law, regulation, the courts, and constitutionalism. Adam, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the GOP Senate has made clear that they intend to confirm Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, uh, even if that means changing the Senate rules and circumventing a Democratic filibuster. Can you explain a little bit, Adam, how we got here? What's the political and historical context, and what are we likely to see happening by the end of the week? Well, it's uh, that's a that's a good question, and how we got here and where we started. There's a couple of places where you could start. You could start with uh, recent fights over judicial nominations and the filibuster. You could fight. You could start with Justice Thomas and, and Judge Bork's nominations, or you could go back. A hundred years to the first really contested uh, nomination, which was Louis Brandeis. For, for present purposes, I think it's safe to say that for the last several decades, beginning at least with the nomination of Judge Robert Bork, uh, the failed nomination of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court nominations have been one of the most hotly contested aspects of our government. Every every Supreme Court nomination for the last decade or so, and many before that, have become political war zones. Uh, in the early Bush years. That war began to extend to the nominations of the lower court judges, uh, judges to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and other circuits. Uh, in those years, you had Democrats trying to block and filibuster nominations to those courts. You had Republicans considering whether to exercise what they called the nuclear option, uh, a tactic in the Senate to, to change the rules with a majority vote and end judicial filibusters. The Republicans didn't push the nuclear button in 2003, but Democrats did in 2013 to secure the nomination of a number of lower court judges, including three judges to the D.C. Circuit, who have helped to affirm some of the Obama administration's uh, controversial rules. Left unsettled, though, was whether the filibuster would be barred for Supreme Court nominations. And that seems to be the question now that's coming to a head with the Gorsuch nomination. If Democrats can successfully maintain a, a 40 vote block, 41 vote block to prevent uh, cloture, to prevent an up or down vote on the Gorsuch nomination, then Senator McConnell and the rest of the Senate will have to decide whether to use the nuclear option to end the filibuster and all filibusters of Supreme Court nominations. What implications might that have for future confirmation, uh, confirmations of Supreme Court nominees? Well, it, I, it would significantly change the dynamic for future Supreme Court nominations, uh, at least to the extent that the, 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 the filibuster was viable going forward. I mean, I, I, I believe that the Supreme Court nomination filibuster was effectively killed in 2013 by the Democrats' action, that it was inevitable that once you, once you eliminated the filibuster for lower court nominations, that, that, that someday, sooner or later, the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations would go away as well. But as long as that filibuster, the threat of a filibuster was in place, it did force presidents to think about how to secure 
confirmation of a nominee with more than just 50 votes. So there, now, there have been two uh, two recent uh, Supreme Court justice appointments that got more than 50 votes, but the less than 60 needed to overcome a filibuster, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. But by and large, presidents have recognized that it's better to get a nomination with broader support, whether it was Roberts or Breyer or other nominees who, who there was really no question of whether or not a filibuster would be attempted. Once you take that away, once it really is, in all cases, just an up or down 50-vote uh, majority, 51-vote majority, there will be less pressure on presidents to pick uh, more moderate candidates. And you could see with the elimination of the filibuster much more strided nominees uh, when the president knows that he has 51 votes lined up to confirm. It's interesting, in particular, because uh, Neil Gorsuch has been has been touted as uh, such a well qualified and well credentialed candidate, but he may end up having this uh, not by his own uh, fault, but may end up having this uh, impact on the confirmation process in the future. Yeah, you- I, I, I have to admit, I, I do think, in some ways, it's incredibly self destructive for the Democrats to put push force this to a. Uh, to a head uh, on this nomination. One, because Gorsuch is is a pretty mild-mattered candidate. You might disagree with his approach. You might think that textualism and originalism uh, and constitutional interpretation, you might think those are extreme theories. But Gorsuch does not present himself as an extremist. Uh, he's, he's very mild-mannered in the way that a Breyer or a Roberts are. They're just not very flappable um, in their hearings. And, and second, in addition to that, he is replacing Justice Scalia. If Gorsuch is appointed, you're replacing one conservative originalist with another. Um, and so Democrats, you would think, would want to keep the filibuster in place for either a much more extreme nominee, uh, a much more outlandish nominee, or uh, a nomination to succeed a non-conservative like Justice Ginsburg or, or somebody like Justice Kennedy, who's a little bit more ambiguous. Um, the fact that the Democrats seem willing to destroy the filibuster on this nomination is is startling, and I think it's a sign of the political times. Uh, and also perhaps retribution in particular for, for uh, Merrick Garland, sort of the, the proximate cause, of course, there's this longer backstory that you've outlined there. Oh, very, very much so. The fact that Republicans uh, declined or refused to proceed on the Garland nomination last year uh, had outraged Democrats, uh, outraged progressives. And I, I don't blame, I suppose, progressives for pushing Democratic senators to use all the tools at their disposal to try to block Gorsuch, even if uh, opposition really is futile at this point. Um, I guess I can't blame progressives for telling Democratic senators not to negotiate against themselves, but rather to try as hard as they can. Sure. Uh, before digging a little bit into uh, Neil Gorsuch's jurisprudence and, in particular, uh, his his uh, the relationship of, of of his jurisprudence to his uh, likely predecessor, um, Justice Scalia, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned, which is that despite all the the flap and around this this confirmation process, um, in a sense, this is re- restoring the ideological balance that the court had uh, before Justice Scalia passed away. Is that correct? That's right. There, I, I don't want to suggest that Gorsuch is a clone of Scalia. I mean, there's various gradations of any you know type of jurisprudence, and so I'm sure there's places where they would disagree. But by and large, you're replacing a conservative originalist Scalia with a conservative originalist Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thinking about uh, the, the conservative originalist Gorsuch, what, what, what do we know about his jurisprudence? And he's written uh, a book where he outlines some of his views on some controversial issues. He obviously has an impressive record uh, as a practicing judge and attorney. Uh, what do we know about him? What might we expect? Uh, about What kinds of decisions uh, might he make? What sorts of uh, frameworks would he apply in making them? You're right. Gorsuch has one book on uh, euthanasia and the philosophy, the philosophical and ethical arguments surrounding it. Although in that book, he, he said he tried to go out of his way not to really engage the legal issues. He really was part of his Ph.D. dissertation. Um, he also contributed to a second book, a more recent book, on judicial precedent, which is interesting. Although I don't think he was the sole author of any part of the book. It was a joint effort, as I understand it. And so... It's hard to sort of map it exclusively onto him. But I think it's pretty clear that Judge Gorsuch, through his speeches, through the confirmation hearing, and through his judicial opinions on the, on the court where he now sits, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit out in Denver, um, it's pretty clear that he is, a, he is and sees himself as a conservative originalist. Uh, namely, the most important thing for him when it comes to interpreting and applying the Constitution is the text itself, the text as it was originally understood by the generation that ratified uh, the constitutional text in question. And that when it comes to interpreting statutes, he tries to interpret it in accordance with the, uh, the meaning of the statute as it was understood by the Congress and President uh, that enacted it. Or at least, is it the, I should be more specific, with statutes you would interpret them in light of their generally understood meaning at the time of their enactment. Uh, now there's limits, you know, even within that general school of originalism and textualism, there are some differences. Justice Scalia really did not like to venture beyond the text to think about more fundamental principles of natural law. Justice Thomas, by contrast, was more open to those considerations. Meanwhile, Justices Alito and Roberts seemed to temper their originalism a little bit more by precedent. I think, by all indication, Justice Gorsuch is somewhere in the middle of all of that. Uh, I have to say, Judge... Uh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, calling him Justice Gorsuch. Uh, <laughs> Judge Gorsuch, I have to say, before he was a judge long ago, he, he clerked for a judge on the D.C. Circuit named Judge David Sentel, who, quite honestly, I, I had the, the pleasure and honor of clerking for a few years after Judge Gorsuch. Hmm. And I think that Judge Gorsuch's approach reminds me very much of Judge Sentel's approach, which is uh, sort of con conventional, conservative originalism. Uh, trying to understand the words of the law uh, in accordance with their generally understood meaning at the time of their enactment. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, on the one hand, there's the originalism, which uh, has garnered a lot of press, and uh, surrounding the death of Scalia, there's a lot of uh, talk about originalism, and one still reads that in, in the newspapers and magazines and so on. But there's also this separate uh, but related uh, interpretive doctrine of textualism, uh, and I'm wondering if you could talk about those two a, a little bit more, in particular, um, keeping in mind something that, that uh, the late Justice Scalia used to say, which is that uh, many of the, the cases that come before the Supreme Court, in fact, most of them uh, don't bear on, the con on constitutional issues directly, but are, are statutory questions where textualism uh, plays a larger role. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and what uh, Neil Gorsuch's uh, views on that might mean for the court. Right. Well, uh, you know, originalism, textualism are often used interchangeably or synonymously. In fact, sometimes I do that myself. I, I say textualist 
talking about the Constitution, and I, I basically mean originalism. I mean, the distinction is pretty subtle, and I might, I might even, I'm at risk of misstating it, but as I understand it, constitutional interpretation is primarily a question, it's a question of originalism. It's a version of textualism that's aimed at the Constitution as it was originally understood at the time of its enactment, you know, with the aid of such documents as the Federalist Papers uh, and the Congressional, the Constitutional Debates in Philadelphia. Textualism is broader. It's talking about not just the Constitution, but also uh, statutes or any legal document. And it, again, it's a, it's a doctrine focused on the text of the law and the words in the law and their meaning. And that might seem self-evident uh, that we would interpret the text of a, we would interpret a law in light of the text and the, the meaning of the text as it was originally understood. But when Justice Scalia joined the court, things were much different. There wasn't much discussion of actual constitutional text at the court. It was more sort of a foggy discussion of what constitutional rules would be best in light of very broad principles. The fact that Justice Scalia's originalism and textualism now would seem to current lawyers almost self-evidently presumptively true, I think is a testament to the success of Scalia and Thomas and Judge Bork and others in sort of uh, changing the focus of the Supreme Court, restoring it back to text rather than broad notions of policy. Hmm. And, the same, and the same with statutes. You mentioned uh, sort of ranging Judge Gorsuch within the you know, pantheon of other conservative uh, jurists. So are there any key differences that you would see uh, between him and uh, Justice Scalia that may impact the way he uh, behaves as a justice on the court? Well, it's too soon to tell. I mean, being a judge on a lower court just isn't like being a justice on the Supreme Court where you're less bound by precedent. There's more room um, to sort of rethink things from first principles, which necessarily could include broader notions of, of natural law that you believe or do not believe infused are infused in the meaning of, of the Constitution's text. So that will play out. I, I think in general... Uh, one difference might be that Judge Gorsuch seems to not agree completely with Judge Justice Scalia on matters of administrative law. Justice Scalia's record in the Supreme Court on administrative law was by and large deferential to agencies, leaving a lot of flexibility for agencies. He was a believer in what was called Chevron deference, which we can uh, unpack a little bit if you like. Uh, Justice Scalia was an advocate for those doctrines through most of his career, although in the end uh, he, he started to question these things both publicly and, and as I understand it, privately, uh, rethink these doctrines. Judge Gorsuch would come to the court as a full-throated critic of some of these doctrines, very much a reformer along the same lines as Justice Thomas, who has been a very vocal critic of doctrines of deference and broad delegation of power. Um, in that respect, Judge Gorsuch seems to, like I said, arrive to the court more uh, in the spirit of Justice Thomas than in Scalia, although, again, these are these are differences within a much broader sort of conservative consensus. Hmm. You mentioned uh, Chevron deference, and uh, in thinking about the importance of statutory interpretation and the role of federal agencies, can, can you explain how this fits in, in, into that picture and what it means and, and what uh, Judge Gorsuch's uh, views as you outline them uh, about uh, deference to federal agencies, what that might mean for American policy and politics. No, I'm glad to, and this is an, the area that I focus on more than anything else um, at the Hoover Institution and 
and where I teach. I, I te- I'm an adjunct professor at the George Mason Law School outside of Washington, which is now the Antonin Scalia Law School, and I just left class where we spent our fourth day <clears throat> discussing Chevron deference. And so I'm glad to return to the subject. The basic story is this. Uh, in the mid-1980s, the Supreme Court decided the Chevron case about wh- how much deference an agent, the courts should give an agency's interpretation of the law. And the basic bottom line of that case is, is that case is that if a statute is written in broad, ambiguous terms, uh, the courts will largely defer to an agency's interpretation of that law so long as the interpretation is reasonable. The court won't supersede the agency's interpretation, a reasonable interpretation, with another interpretation of its own. And this, uh, this doctrine arose in the 80s uh, because there was a recognition that a lot of statutes are very broadly written, and they effectively commit policy discretion by Congress uh, to the agencies. And it's better, the court said in the 80s, for agencies to exercise that discretion than for unelected judges to exercise that policy discretion, because agencies are, at, at least to some extent, accountable to the people through the president in the way that courts just are not. And so that was a major doctrine in the 80s, in the 30 years that have passed, though, there are concerns primarily on the right, but not exclusively on the right, that maybe the pendulum swung too far, that maybe now courts are too deferential to agencies, and maybe courts should be a little more rigorous or much more rigorous in judicial review of agencies' legal interpretations than they currently are. And Justice Thomas has been a prominent critic. Scholars like Professor Philip Hamburger in his book um, on administrative law have been very critical of this. And Judge Gorsuch, in a couple of opinions, seems to adopt some of these criticisms. You know, with uh, concerns he expresses that agencies just have too much power and discretion and that effectively agencies uh, can now overrule courts in their legal interpretations. Gorsuch is also concerned, he's expressed concerns about the breadth of powers that Congress delegates to agencies. He hasn't made really clear what he thinks the, 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 the best response to that is. And to what extent the courts really can micromanage or can monitor this or micromanage it, and how much of it really falls to Congress to, to better undertake its own constitutional role. But Gorsuch has expressed concerns about this that go beyond the concerns that, that Justice Scalia uh, offered, and they really, do, they really do reflect more the concerns of, of Justice Thomas. And so it's a basic reconsideration of the breadth of powers that are vested in the administrative state and the amount of deference that the agencies get from the courts. It's a two-pronged attack, and I think it's very, very, it's very interesting to see how this will play out. Hmm. What, what, what specific uh, issues or cases can we expect uh, this issue of deference to play out, uh, when, it, assuming that uh, Judge Gorsuch is confirmed and on the court? Well, they come up in, in most agency cases. I mean, the administrative agencies decide all manner of things that then get appealed to the courts of appeals and then occasionally to the Supreme Court. But for, for a couple of examples, you know, the D.C. Circuit uh, recently uh, heard an appeal to the FCC's big net neutrality rules, um, and it, it ruled in favor of the agency. If, if that policy remains in place and it gets appealed up to the Supreme Court, then Chevron deference would be a huge issue. The same with some EPA rules, but you know, it remains to be seen whether those rules will remain in place long enough to be fully appealed to the Supreme Court. My guess is that these issues will ultimately be vetted. Um, these Chevron issues will ultimately really come out in just one or more of the mundane agency cases that get appealed 
to the courts on a daily basis. Um, that's where these sorts of issues have arisen elsewhere. And uh, we may find ourselves having a, a fundamental and profound debate over deference to administrative agencies in a case arising from some otherwise mundane uh, Labor Department rule or FCC rule or who, who really knows. Um, the issue is actually it's just much bigger than any single agency uh, rulemaking. It's, it's sort of funny considering uh, Congress's interest, uh, renewed interest in, in reclaiming a lot of its own legislative authority that uh, between that and the, the potential confirmation of Judge Gorsuch, the issue of uh, administrative law, which one might think is a fairly obscure topic, has sort of been thrust into the limelight as a key political issue. That, that's right. Uh, while all these debates are happening in the courts, they're also happening in Congress. I sort of joke along the same lines of what you just said. I've been called to testify a few times before Congress on some of these issues. And, you know, we have events at the Hoover Institution and elsewhere, and I often say the fact that any of this is now a political issue is really a big indication of how far afield the administrative state has gotten from the general sense of, of constitutional Republican government. I mean, Republican in the lower R sense of a government that's ultimately accountable to the people through the three branches of government. Um, this is an issue that's beyond the courts right now. And you may see reforms on Chevron deference or delegation or other things that come through Congress. The House has passed a number of bills, and the Senate will consider some bills soon, I hope. And uh, it, it could ultimately be resolved in Congress as much as in the courts. But, but the Senate's review, and, and I, I expect confirmation of Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, is a, a major step, I think, in advancing on some of these debates. Whenever there's a Supreme Court nominee confirmation, it seems that one side or the other is always combing through the record of the nominee to try to find uh, things, decisions they've written, opinions they've written, um, uh, articles, law school papers, something to sort of find a, a, a gotcha uh, for the nominee. Uh, one case that's come up quite a bit in the case of Judge Gorsuch is the so-called frozen trucker case. Could, could you explain that case a little bit? What, what's going on there? And uh, what's supposed to be at issue, and how might it illustrate uh, Judge Gorsuch's jurisprudence? Sure. Well, as it happens, this case, which I, I wrote about a little bit for the Weekly Standard's website recently, um, and as it happens, the, con the, the, the incident at issue in the case occurred not too far from where I grew up. I'm, I'm from eastern Iowa on the Mississippi River, and this incident occurred on I-88 in Illinois. What happened mm. was there was a, a truck driver, um, in January of, I think, 2009, a, a truck driver pulled to the side of the highway, um, and when he went to get back on the road after a break, he found that the brakes on his trailers had, had frozen, and, and he didn't believe that the truck could be safely operated. And so he called his dispatch and, and asked for assistance, and he was told to stay in place. Uh, the, the repairs would come on the way to fix the brakes. And so the trucker uh, tried to take a break. Uh, he tried to take a nap in his cab. And he woke up and found uh, that the heater in his cab wasn't working. He was at, at, at risk of freezing, he believed. He was feeling numb in his extremities. And his dispatcher told him to stay in place, help him be on the way. But finally, the truck driver did what I think most reasonable people would do in that situation. He disconnected the trailer from the, 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 the truck and drove away. And he was fired for this. He was fired for disobeying the instructions of his dispatcher and for leaving uh, the truck, uh, sorry, the trailer, uh, unguarded on the side of the road. He was fired for this. Now, under federal law, under federal statute, a truck driver 
I'm just, just going to say this very in very broad terms. A, a truck driver can't be fired for, among other things, refusing to operate his vehicle uh, when he thinks that there's a, a real safety concern. Well, in this case, he drove the truck away, and that's the crux of the debate. The Tenth Circuit held that uh, he could not properly be fired for this, um, or more specifically, that the federal agency that governs this was right in protecting the truck driver from being fired. Because according to the agency, your refusal to operate the vehicle along the lines directed by your dispatcher is the same thing as refusing to operate at all. So the fact that he disconnected the trailer and drove away meant that he was effectively refusing to operate the vehicle. Uh, Judge Gorsuch saw it the other way. He said that the driver didn't refuse to operate his vehicle. He, he operated his vehicle and he drove it away. He drove the truck away. And that the statute in question only protects truck drivers for refusing to operate the vehicle. Now, whether that's a good policy or a bad policy, and like I said, I think anybody in their right mind probably would have driven away at that moment. Uh, whether it's good policy or bad policy isn't the question because it's the policy that Congress prescribed in the statute, according to Judge Gorsuch. And so as Gorsuch saw his job, it was, was it to rewrite the statute or change the policy Congress had, had enacted. It was to uh, administer the statute in question. Uh, I think that reveals, I think it's a good example of Judge Gorsuch's textualism, that as he sees that the job of a judge in interpreting a statute isn't to rewrite the statute, and I do think Judge Gorsuch had the better interpretation of the statute, the job of the judge isn't to rewrite the statute, it's to interpret the statute and apply it as written by Congress. Now, at the hearings, this became an a very explosive issue. Uh, it was an easy issue for Senator Franken and, and others to, to really beat up on Judge Gorsuch for seeming seemingly being cruel and heartless and not protecting this truck driver from being fired. Like I said, I wrote about it for the Weekly Standard, and uh, to borrow sort of a metaphor, as it happens, my grandfather is a truck driver. I said, I think it's a good example of Judge Gorsuch staying in his own lane and recognizing <laughs> that judges need to stay in their own lanes, um, or the line I like better, to keep their own bridges between the ditches. <laughs> and uh, that, that, But that was not how, how Senator Franken and others saw it, and they really did try to pummel Gorsuch for not uh, reinterpreting the statute or more creatively interpreting the statute for the sake of the truck driver. It reminds me of uh, another line that Justice Scalia used to use when talking about the distinction that you're drawing here between the role of the judge and the role of the legislator, which is garbage in, garbage out. to make predictions like this, but if I could ask you, what kinds of issues or cases do you expect might be brought before the court in the next year or so that uh, a potential Justice Gorsuch might be uh, on the court for, and, and what role might he play uh, in, in hearing them? Well, the vast bulk of the court's work is pretty mundane. Even at the Supreme Court, the daily stuff of the Supreme Court is interpretation 
violation of bankruptcy statutes or patent statutes or, or labor statutes, all really mundane disputes that are interesting to court watchers and interesting to people who, who live or work in those areas or, or lawyers who practice those areas. But they're really, they're not highlight, you know, they're not news-making cases and they're largely decided unanimously or, or you know, along lines that aren't exclusively ideological. The real hot-button issues, though, the ones that people will be watching, um, until recently would have been cases out of the administrative state. Like I said, net neutrality, clean power plan, uh, things like that. Except now with President Trump in office and taking a very firm hand in reorienting the agencies, it's hard to imagine a lot of those disputes coming up. And so I think you'll see Judge Gorsuch hearing cases. First and foremost, there will be a big case probably in the Supreme Court over immigration policy. There will be cases on religious liberty coming out of the states, I believe, cases in which, say, uh, a baker or somebody is being required by state regulators uh, or other state officials to, um, say, bake a cake or otherwise work in service of a same-sex wedding. Those issues seem to be cropping up and and could come to the court. Um, So you'll see disputes coming out of the states. You'll see immigration and other hot-button issues at the federal level. those will probably be the most controversial ones. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, Adam. Thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.